Hello again, it's your friendly neighborhood host, J.T. Wheatley, back for another episode of the History Comic Books Podcast. This time with a uh, rather traumatic but uh, somewhat under, under, misunderstood event, and that was the Battle for Marvel. Today, Marvel is one of the largest entertainment companies in the world, with its movie franchise the highest grossing in history, along with their recent Disney Plus shows being some of the most watched on streaming services. However, it wasn't long ago that Marvel was in bankruptcy in danger of being dissolved, something that would have prevented all of this from happening. Even at that point, there were more than a few people who realized the potential of Marvel and fought tooth and nail for ownership of it, including two of the biggest Wall Street investors at the time. However, neither one would win. Instead, it would be a Jewish immigrant who, while a multimillionaire, his wealth did not equal those investors, and strangely enough, it all started because he just wanted to make toys for Marvel. His name was Isaac Pumiter, and while he never wrote a comic or created a character for Marvel, his work behind the scenes will forever shape the company from hereafter. Isaac Ike Permuter was born in what was then the British Mandate of Palestine, now Israel, on December 1, 1942. He would later serve in the Six-Day War in 1967 and immigrate to the United States with just $250 in his pocket when he arrived in New York City. Just 24 years old and single, Permuter used his Jewish heritage to scratch out a living. With a yarmulke on his uh, head and a prayer book in his hand, he provided a service chanting mournful verses over the graves of departed Jew- at the Jewish cemeteries in Brooklyn. Permuter would later marry his uh, wife, Lori, who he met at a Catskills Mountain Resort, and with a bank loan along with, from his new in-laws, set out to become a businessman. He partnered with Bernard Marlden, who invested a million dollars in Permuter to see what he could do, and together they formed Odd Lot Trading Company, a company that specialized as a wholesaler and retailer of closeout items. The principle was simple. When the business went insolvent, odd lot uh, trading would buy up their surplus inventory, such as bars of soap that were taking up too much space in the warehouse, for a nickel apiece, and then sell for 50 to 75 cents to other businesses. The company soon became so successful they sold it to Revco discount drug stores in exchange for 12% of Revco's stock in May of 1984. Martin and Permuter would then try to use this to take over the company, but when that failed, they sold their stock for $120 million. Permuter next set his sights on the Calico Entertainment Corporation, which which he had a business relationship with, having bought unsold stock from them for years on a 50% cash, 50% barter goods basis, amassing $144 million in payments over four years. In 1988, Permuter recognized the company was in trouble with the invention of the personal computer affecting sales of their video game consoles. Thus, he bought $85 million worth of their senior debt for $50 million, thus making him the senior to the bondholders in the event of a bankruptcy. When the company did file for Chapter 11, though, the bondholders became suspicious of Permuter's uh, close relationship with Coleco's management and sued his barter good value, which represented half the money he received in Coleco. After eight months of litigation, the eventual settlement had Coleco sold to Hasbro Corporation for $85 million, with Permuter receiving $64 million on his debt claim. However, the lawsuit also soured Permuter's uh, relationship with Marden, ending their professional partnership. Permuter didn't feel too bad since he figured that Marden made $100 million over his original $1 million investment. I. Permuter next set his sights on Remington products, which produced shaver and hair care appliances, buying a majority share of the company for $25 million, and instead of liquidating it, he actually streamlined the company, firing bad management and unloading costly products. By 1996, Remington was back on his feet, and Permuter fielded offers and he sold the company to Vestar Capital Partners for $200 million. Not a bad margin, profit margin off his original $25 million investment. 
Having revived Remington, Ike Perlmutter next acquired Toy Biz, a Canadian-based toy manufacturer in 1990. Originally, Perlmutter was planning to sell off their excise stock and make millions, but decided instead to save the company from insolvency like he did with Remington. To do this, Perlmutter hired a fellow Israeli immigrant, A.B. Arod, to help design the toys and products, and he knew someone else who would have a huge effect on the future of Marvel. A.V. Arab was born on April 18, 1948 in Ramat Gan, Israel, the son of a Polish Holocaust survivors. Growing up, he loved reading uh, comic books like Superman and Spider-Man, which were translated into Hebrew. In 1965, Arab was conscripted into the Israeli Defense Forces, eventually serving in the Six-Day War in 1967, where he was wounded and spent 15 days recuperating. Arod would finish his service in 1968 and later immigrated to the United States, where he enrolled in the Hospitora University in 1970 to study industrial management. To put himself through school, Arod worked as a truck driver and a Hebrew teacher before graduating with a Bachelor's of Business Administration in 1972 and would eventually move into, the, into toy and game design. Arod originally met Permeter when he was disputing him over royalty payments for the toys he had designed, as by this time Arod was a top designer working for Hasbro, Mattel, and Tyco, just named a few, making three to six million dollars a year. While wrangling over his contract, Permeter apparently saw something in A.V. Arod, being a fellow Israeli and Six Day War veteran, and offered him a full time job at Toy Biz in 1993, with salary and stocked options that he would uh, promise would be worth up to $50 million one day. Toybiz started doing well with AVA were designing uh, made-to-order toys such as Caboodles, Babies Love to Talk, and Voice Box. However, there was one problem with Toybiz in the competitive world of toy manufacturing and that their bottom line was always undercut by the royalties they had to pay out to companies like Disney and Warner Brothers. However, a new plan came about when the Permeter heard of plans to turn Marvel Comics into a mini-Disney. We would later see how right this was and decided Toybiz would be perfect to make the toys. They wanted to make sure that Marvel sold their toys through them, but the price tag and the royalties were too high. So, Permeter came up with an idea where Toy Biz would acquire the exclusive rights to manufacture toys at the Marvel license in exchange for Marvel Comics being a stake in Toy Biz over royalties. All they had to do was convince Marvel Comics' owner, the billionaire financier Ron Perlman, to go along with it. Ron Owen Perlman was born on January 1, 1943 in Greensboro, North Carolina, the son of Ruth and Raymond G. Perlman, himself a financier and founder of RGP Holdings. Growing up at Elkins Park, an affluent largely Jewish community, Perlman learned finance from his father, regularly sitting in on board meetings since he was 11 years old. He would eventually attend the Villanova School of Business for one semester before transferring to Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, graduating with a master's in business in 1966. While still a freshman in college, Perman made his first business acquisition when his father, in 1961, buying the local Isligan uh, brewery for $800,000 and later, three years later would sell for $1 million in profit. Perman immediately went to work for his father, managing the family-owned Belmont Ironworks, later remaining Belmont Industries, while also assisting his father in other deals. Their family business strategy was to buy a company, selling off the superfluous parts of the business to reduce debt and increase profit while bringing the company back to its core. Then the Perlmans would either sell the company or hold on to it as a money-generating asset, depending on which one was more profitable. By 1965, Ron Perlman's personal life stepped up as well as he married his first wife, Faith Golding, the heiress of a Sterling Bank real estate and banking company, whom he had met on a cruise and was herself worth $100 million at the time of their marriage. 
While Perman no doubt enjoyed the infusion of capital from his new in-laws, the union also resulted in four children, three, Stephen, Josh, and Hope, whom were adopted, while the fourth, Deborah, Faith gave birth to, in 18 years of marriage. However, this would be the first of Perlman's five marriages, with this one ending when Faith learned of an affair after the bill for a Bulgari bracelet Perlman bought for his mistress was sent to his and Faith's home instead of his office. The, cup, the couple would have a contentious divorce, with Faith even accusing Perlman of defrauding her own company, First Sterling Corporation, for thousands of dollars to buy gifts for his mistress. They would eventually settle for $8 million in 1984. However, this wouldn't be the first break Perlman made with his family, or his first contentious divorce, as in 1978 he became estranged from his own father when he set up to build his own empire. After 12 years in the family business, Ron Perlman was still just vice president of Belmont Industries and longed for more power and control of the family business. However, his father Raymond had no intention of stepping down anytime soon, so Ron left the business instead, moving to New York City in 1978. The move would estrange himself from his father, Raymond, as Ron wanted to settle on his own, but his father was personally hurt by it, leading to the two to barely speak for three years. Now in the financial capital of the world, Ron Perlman set about the building his empire, first with acquiring Cohen Hatfield Jewelers in 1978 with a $2 million loan from his, his then-wife, Faith. Following the model he learned from his father, Perlman sold off all the company's retail locations, reducing it to a lucrative wholesale jewelry division, and earning himself $15 million. With that $15 million, plus another bankload of $35 million, Ron Perlman bought McAndrews and Forbes Holding, Incorporated, a New Jersey licorice and chocolate extract company that his father once failed to acquire. And he would, with him as the sole owner, it would be his first business he, that was, he would have that was listed in the New York Stock Exchange. The loan was through Chase Manhattan Bank, which began a long and fruitful partnership and was also playing a role in the future of Marvel. He, was, he, he pleased the bank by repaying the loan within a year in 1980, which he did by issuing $35 million in junk bonds sold by Milken's Drexel, Berman, Lambert, and Bear Stearns, furthering his connections to Wall Street. Junk bonds was a new technique Ron Perlman bring into his business empire, and he recruited a pack of Wall Street wolves like Michael Milken and Harry Geddes, a lawyer from his Philadelphia Perlman brought over, who specialized in them, or as Perlman and his fellow investors would call them, high-yield securities. Simply put, they were extremely risky, hence the term junk, but offered high interest in return, and they would become Perlman's specialty. The trick was to create holding companies, separate companies formed to pay off the bonds, which Perman would issue the bonds through, through them, but since they were separate companies, the original businesses could be held liable for them. Perlman continued to buy what he perceived to be undervalued companies, building, a, building them up and then reselling them for a healthy profit, to the Revlon and Technicolor. Perlman liked to keep a billion dollars in reserve for just as future acquisitions. Soon, Perlman had a personal wealth of $6 billion, though it would take a hit every time he was divorced, through buying and selling companies ranging from food flavoring, makeup, and electronics. One such company, previously mentioned Technicolor, which he bought in 1983 for $125 million after restructuring, sold for a whopping $780 million in 1978. In 1985, he acquired the grocery store chain Paintry Pride, closing all its stores, and then used the shell of the company to take over the cosmetics giant's Revlon. It was this deal that made Perlman's name on Wall Street, for better or worse, along with the nickname The Lipstick Guy at Marvel Comics. Perlman was also becoming something of a celebrity. In 2000, he would marry actress Ellen Barkin, his fourth wife. Howard Geddes and Donald Drapkin were shareholders and his closest advisors, but he ran the show. 
Perlman's office, a seven-story, 25,000-square-foot building, was located at 35 East 62nd Street in Manhattan. It was known in the business world as the townhouse, and it was this company that will eventually become the owner of Marvel Comics. Perlman bought Marvel back in January of 1989 from New World Entertainment for $82.5 million, which had acquired the comic company back in 1986 in the hopes of developing its intellectual property into films and TV shows. However, the, the new owners would soon learn that the rights of many of their most popular characters from The Incredible Hulk to Spider-Man were sold off for cheap years before. Deciding instead to sell it, they went to Ron Perlman. He managed to have $70 million of the purchasing price put up by Chase Manhattan Bank, with Ron Perlman just putting up $12.5 million of his own money. Perlman planned to expand Marvel, claiming to want to create a mini-Disney and hire Bill Bevins to run it, a former CFO from Turner Broadcasting, who went through the company from top to bottom, ending unprofitable or unpromising pro- projects with the intention of recouping Perlman's $12.5 million investment. They would worry about Chase Manhattan's $70 million loan later. Perlman would later buy New World Entertainment outright for $145 million, putting Bill Bevins in charge of this company, now called the Andrews Group, which moved and acquired a dozen television stations, switching them from CBS to the new Fox station, and then sold them to Fox owner Rupert Murdoch for $500 million. Murdoch would later buy New World from Perlman outright for $2.5 billion. With Marvel now in hand, it was this that attracted the attention of toy biz owners like Perlman and Avery Arod, who came to him with their deal to st- of on a stake in the company in exchange for royalty-free rights to manufacture Marvel toys. Ron Perlman agreed, seeing as another company he could eventually buy up, it would end up owning 80% of Marvel and 40% of Toy Biz, though through his holding companies he actually owned 100% of Marvel. Owning 80% of Marvel also allowed McAndrews and Forbes to add their profits to its books. In the deal, Perlman traded royalties for Marvel having part ownership of Toy Biz to Marvel owner Ron Perlman at 46%. By March of 1993, Toy Biz Incorporated was formed, but it soon became apparent that Perlman and Perlmaner had different visions for Marvel and how just to make money on it. Shockingly, it turned out Perlman didn't want to develop Marvel comics into movies, despite the recent success of such comic book adaptations as Batman and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. In fact, when an opportunity to clear up the rights to make a Spider-Man movie for just $600,000 came up, Perlman opted to just pay, pay $250,000 to have the current producers, McGolan and Yaron Goldwiss of Canon Pictures, just go away. In Bill Bevan's own words, he stated Perlman just wanted to sell the hype of making the movie, not the movie itself, because if it bombed, it could backfire on Marvel. This was especially disappointing to Perlmutter and A-Rod, as they knew developing movies and TV shows from Marvel Comics would not only be good for the company, but help Toy Biz sell their toys. Warner Brothers reportedly made nearly a billion dollars off the merchandising sales of the 1989 Batman film alone. Longtime fan A.V. A-Rod was especially upset as he felt Perlman was neglecting Marvel's potential. Granted, it didn't help that many of Marvel's licenses to characters like Spider-Man or the X-Men had been sold off for cheap years before. However, Perlman was the owner who reportedly hated working with Hollywood anyway, and they would have to live with it for now. Ike Permillo and Ron Perlman were a sharp contrast in personal and professional life as well. Permillo, who was notorious cheapskate, stayed married to the same wife for over 40 years, while Perlman would, of course, be married for up to five times and known for his free spending. This naturally caused the two to clash, and Permillo would warn Perlman that his free spending maids would lead Marvel to bankruptcy. Nevertheless, Perlman fell under the tr- Perlman's charms, nearly donated $100,000 to meet President Bill Clinton, as Perlman's then third wife, Patricia Duff, was a major Democratic fundraiser. Thankfully, Perlman divorced in uh, 1996 before Perlman had to write the check. 
While Perlman thought that Marvel was an opportunity to sell choice, Ron Perlman saw it as an opportunity to use the company to sell junk bonds. Not realizing it was a distinctive part of American and world pop culture, being the home of Spider-Man, the X-Men, and the Fantastic Four, among others. It helped the company was riding high from the early 1990s speculation market with millions in sales every month. However, the comics industry in general was up, with new companies like Image making noise, and Perlman thought Marvel should focus on the current properties over creating new ones. Perlman's plan was to focus on more current properties over hiring artists to come up with new ideas as a way to contain cost and increase profitability. In addition, Perlman decided to make Marvel go public, listing it as MRV in the New York Stock Exchange. He would sell 40% of the company at $70 million in 1991, with Perlman pocketing $40 million, nearly quadrupling his original $12.5 million investment, while still holding 60% control of Marvel. By 1993, he was listing junk bonds through Marvel Holdings Company, but none of that money went into Marvel to reinvest in the company, but instead his own pocket. One trick to avoid this was having these bonds come up as a zero coupon, meaning that the interest didn't need to be paid off until the maturity date, which was often four or five years away. And when that came due, Portman would just issue a new set of bonds to refinance the debt. However, even this game was dangerous. Before it could continue, Marvel needed to get a lot bigger, but this plan would also lead to Marvel's bankruptcy. Ron Perlman decided the best way to increase the size of Marvel Comics was to buy related companies and bring them into the fold. In July of 1992, Perlman had Marvel buy the trading card companies Fleer for $286 million and then Skybox for $150 million, both paid with loans from Chase Manhattan. With Skybox, Marvel had the NBA trading card license but was hampered by a bad deal as instead of a share of the card sales, the NBA was paid millions up front for the license, a stupid deal by any measure resulting in $15 million in fees every year. Next, Perlman had the Marvel acquire the Panini Group, a sticker company, for $150 million, but that was also had troubling deals, as Panini would pay studios like Disney for the license to sell stickers of the, their characters for upcoming movies, but if the movie flopped, Panini would be left holding the bag. Within a few years, Marvel was $700 million in debt, but, but its stock was, had risen to $34 a share. However, in 1994, the card market had crashed in large part to the Major League Baseball going on strike that year. This didn't deter Ron Perlman, who pushed Marvel to buy Heroes World Distributor on December 28, 1994, believing they would contain costs by owning their own distribution network. They only managed to infuriate comic book retailers as Marvel instituted non-returnable orders along with being forced to order from different distributors to get all their comics. Perlman claimed this was done because Marvel accounted for 55% of the sales of comic books, but only claimed 30% of the shelf space at stores. No idea where he got those figures. However, the main problem with Perlman's buying a distributor for Marvel Comics was that he bought the wrong one. At the time, Heroes World was just the third largest distributor of comic books after Diamond and Capital City Distribution, and didn't have the reach of those two. As a result, many comic stores just stopped or were unable to buy Marvel Comics, resulting in the loss of 35-40% to 40% of their sales value. This caused many comic book stores to close, and with no stores to sell their products, the comic book industry contracted in general. Meanwhile, in response to Heroes World getting exclusive rights to Marvel, Diamond and Capital City signed exclusive deals with other comic book companies. DC, Image, Dark Horse, and Valiant went to Diamond, while Capital City signed Kitchen Sink and Viz. Eventually, as the comic book industry continued to shrink, both Capital City and Heroes World would collapse, leading to Diamond to be the sole distributor of comic books for decades afterwards. At least until the recent COVID pandemic forced both Mar- DC and Marvel, through their new respective owners, Warner Bros. and Disney, to seek their separate distributors when Diamond briefly halted distributing comic books in 2020. 
Still pushing forward after having Marvel go public, Ron Perlman then turned around and bought 80% of the company for $300 million for $25 a share, and then formed Marvel Holdings to issue $900 million in junk bonds. Much of the money going right back into his pockets. The maturity date for these bonds was April of 1998, while Perlman was using Marvel stock as collateral. Perlman hoped this strategy of buying and acquiring companies from Marvel would make it more valuable, but it wasn't long before investors were being scared off by its long-term debt, dropping the shares to $16. Then the comic sales started to fall as the speculation crash occurred, and on March of 1995, Marvel reported its first loss, forcing the first dismissal of staff and a cancellation of projects for the first time in years. Desperate to improve Marvel's outlook, Perlman convinced Ike Perlmutter on AVA Rod to make Toy Biz public on February of 1995, with the sweetener being that they each would make $10 million apiece. However, it wasn't long before Perlman wanted to acquire all of Toy Biz, but Perlmutter and A Rod was not willing to sell, especially for the high yield bonds Perlman offered as payment, which were essentially IOUs. They were becoming wise to Perlman's financial tricks. A-Rod and Perlmutter were willing to at least give Perlman control of the Toy Biz's board by having his shares made into Class B under Marvel, which meant that each share counted for 10 votes over just one. However, Perlmutter and A-Rod insisted on a clause that if Perlman lost control of Marvel, they would, those shares would convert to a regular one-vote Class A shares, something that would become very important in the future. With that, August 13th, 1996 was the second offering of Toy Biz stock with 3.2 million shares offered at $28 million profit. Ron Perlman would then go around to sell Marvel stocks for $40 million, with Perlman and A-Rod getting nothing. They did get $100,000 in shares at $15 to start Marvel Studios. Marvel then dumped 2.5 million shares for $35 million, which was used as a down payment on a $700 million debt to the banks. Did this, did this not stop the decline in sales for Marvel at $145 million? Despite these troubles, Toy Biz was operating smoothly and predicting a $265 million in sales in 1996. Flair's Skybox were predicted to raise $265 million, while Panini was, about, was supposed to receive about $200 million. Unfortunately, all three failed to meet those goals. Now looking to increase sales, Bill Bevins hired the former Marvel artist and now Image stars Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee to revive several key key characters like Captain America, Iron Man, Fantastic Four, and the Avengers for the event Heroes Reborn in 1996. This ended up failing as the stories and the art were poorly conceived. Rod Liefeld's Captain America comic remains one of the most mock moments in comic book history, while fans saw this as contracting outside talent to fix the company, only further hurting Marvel. To help with the problems, Ron Perlman hired Scott Sass as Marvel's new chief executive officer in 1996, who finally pushed for making movie adaptations. Despite this move, Marvel stocks dropped to $4.50 a share. It didn't help that one of Marvel's prime properties, Spider-Man's movie rights, were still wrapped in convoluted legal hassles, having been sold and resold for years, and it wouldn't be resolved for years afterwards. See the previous History of Spider-Man episodes for further detail on this. Plus, many of the movie rights were sold for just a few thousand dollars. X-Men, for example, was, was such a sale with no percentage on future ticket sales. However, when asked, Sasser said Marvel couldn't make movies themselves. Not yet, anyway. His best solution was merging Marvel with Toy Biz and Perlman injecting $350 million into the company. At news of this, Marvel's stock jumped to $22 a share, but partly with per- permissory notes. However, part of the deal required a 410 million new shares to be issued by Marvel, which means Perlman would just have to pay $0.85 cents a share, ripping off investors. 
That news brought Marvel's stock crashing to $1 a share. Outside of all these financial wranglings, the fan response to Marvel was getting even worse as Bob Coons, a 21-year-old Duke University student, organized a boat guide against a company that Ralph Macchio, Marvel's then editor-in-chief, was forced to call Coons and ask for his input on future Spider-Man plots. Much of this is brought about by the disastrous clone saga story in Spider-Man comics that tried to say that Spider-Man, that was the star of the comics for the years, was just a clone, while the real one had lived in seclusion. To date, it is one of the most hated events in Spider-Man's history. Don Markstein, another outraged fan, even, even started the Marvel Tea Party to burn their comics while Tim Truman, a comic book artist, personally targeted Ron Perlman as the reason for Marvel's woes. With all this fan outrage, the sales from Marvel Comics plummeted, forcing Marvel to reduce its workforce, going from 52 editors to 12, while the number of titles went from 120 to 40. While this was part of a larger contraction of the comic book industry, Marvel was bearing the worst of it, and, it, and with its long-term debt, bankruptcy was looming. Despite these problems, Ron Perlman kept up with the buying spree, having Marvel acquire Malibu Comics for $15 million back in November of 1994, mostly for its computerized coloring system, believing it could lead to faster production, but also because he heard rumors that DC Comics was planning to buy them. Plus, he kept Marvel in, in pushing gimmicks to sell books, but readers had long since moved on from this fad and were particularly infuriated by the variant covers, as they seen Marvel was trying to make readers buy six copies of the same book. One bright spot was on October of 1996, the clone saga in Spider-Man books finally ended, affirming that Peter Parker was the original Spider-Man while the clone was turned to dust. Don't worry, he gets better. Plus, the original Green Goblin, Norman Osborn, was back to life because no one stays dead in comic books. None of this helped Marvel overall, as it went from 70% of the comic book marketplace to just 25% in 1996, and it was around this time another player entered the field to acquire Marvel. Billionaire financier, Carl Icahn. And we will leave you there for now in this uh, multi-part series in the Battle for Marvel Comics. We'll join me again next week when we learn about Carl Icahn, the second uh, billionaire financier coming after Marvel Comics, and the ensuing battles in bankruptcy court. Super Kick Party. It's the wrestling podcast from the host who is the hammer swinging, burrito eating, well, you know the rest of Thunder Talk. Sexy. Four. It's the Ring of Thunder found in the Thunderverse and among the great podcasts of the ESO Network. Now it is July 1st, uh, 2021. Time for the favorite comic of the week. Spectre Inspectors, number five, by Bowen McCurdy and Kayla Musto, which includes the first story arc of this uh, comedy uh, ghost drama ghost series that finds uh, Noah and Astrid and the rest of the crew discovering uh, what the, the actual history of the demon that's possessing Astrid and the real-world consequences that comes with it. This is a great, dramatic, action-packed uh, Ending to this, uh, the first story arc for this great series that uh, not only delivers some great action that's out of nowhere. For instance, you get a full-on giant anime monster, which is pretty creepy in its own right. But also a great uh, dramatic conclusion to a Noah and Astrid's relationship that uh, should bring all the readers who've been reading this from the beginning, like myself, uh, very satisfied. 
It's matched perfectly with McCurdy's art, which is still very kind of cartoony, but still delivers on the drama and the action, making for just one of the best new comic books of this year. Just a great read all around. So, yeah, Spectre and Spectre is number five. Pick it up from the first issue. It's probably going to be collected by Boom Studios, by Boombox uh, pretty soon. It's just a great read in general. And, uh, yeah, one of the best new comic books the, of this year. And uh, with that, that's the first part of the Battle for Marvel Comics. Join me again next week when we get into the second part. And until again, go out and enjoy yourself. Good comic book.